And this has been a series in which we are pushing in to learn more of God's heart. We realize that through the Christmas story, Jesus is the actualization of God's heart. This is a story in which hope, celebration, and promise has been birthed into the world forevermore. Our series, The Holy Way, has actually been an invitation for us to explore the heart of God, to press in, to know more of who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and how we may walk in the way of God's heart within our neighborhoods and our spheres of influence. The first week, we looked at God's peace. The second, God's heart for harmony. The promise of God's healing in the third The fourth, we looked at this longing and lamenting for restoration. Last week, we looked on Christmas Day at what it means to make room for Jesus in our lives. This morning, we are going to follow the journey of the Magi. This morning, we get to look at the Nativity story as it's begun to show just how deep, how inclusive, and how uniquely big the story of God really is. I'm going to invite you this morning to follow along with me from Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. You'll find that in your pew. Uh, It'll also be on the screen in front of you if you want to follow along. So as you are finding Matthew 2, 1 through 12, I just want to set the scenery a little bit of what is happening at this time. Before we read this passage, Let's look at something. We are at a point in this story of the Magi coming to visit Jesus that is a major hinge point or a major point of transition in society at this time, of culture at this time. In a moment where people are yearning for and needing and expecting and anticipating a change in the world, a few weeks ago we looked at how people of God, the people of God, the city of God was longing for God to break his silence. They knew it had to be soon. They were holding to the hope that God was going to break his silence and scream out and once again restore his people and his community. Well, however, as we look at this story, it's not only God's people who noticed they were on the hinge or on the verge of transition. In fact, if we would study Roman historians, these extra-biblical accounts of history at this time from Rome and from, and from Jewish scholars at the time, we find that overall people in this season, in this era, had a longing and expectation and anticipation that something was about to happen, something big was going to happen. In his book on the life of Vespian, historian Suetonus writes this, There had spread over all the Orient and Old an established belief that it was fated at the time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. So this is extra-biblical. This is Roman historians at the time of Jesus writing that they can feel, that they can sense something is about to happen in Judea. God's plan has actually grown outside of the community of his people. Historian Tactius writes in his book, Histories, There was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was going to grow powerful and rulers from Judea were to acquire a universal empire, an empire that will rule everything. At the same time, first century Roman Jewish scholar Josephus, in his chapters 
on the wars of the Jews, wrote this within regards to what he knew of the era. About that time, one from their country should become governor of the habitable, habitable earth. What this tells us is this. What does Matthew's story tell us that we're going to read? That when Jesus Christ came into the world, the world was in eagerness of expectation. God's people were waiting for God to break his silence. They were holding on to the hope of Isaiah that God said, I will break my silence and I will cry out like a, a woman in childbirth. But at the same time, in the natural world, we see that people are beginning to sense that something is going to happen. Something big. And they are starting to write it in their own story. It's obvious to everyone that change was inevitable. When Jesus Christ came into the world, the world was full of eagerness, of expectation. God was up to something. And it was beginning to reflect in the natural world, in the historical world, and the supernatural. It was on the skies. It was on the lips of individuals. And as you can see in these writings, it was on the hopes of everyone. So where we pick up this story is the story of these magi who traveled to see Jesus. There's been this remarkable phenomenon, this, this light that hangs in the sky that grabs the attention of some people, uh, which in the New International Version calls it magi, or in some translation may call wise men. And over time, we've kind of engulfed them with this legend that they were kings, and we kind of assigned kingship to them. But what they are really here, where we pick up, is merely seekers of the truth. They are wise people that are seeking and longing to know the truth. William Barclay explains their, their context like this. These magi were men who were skilled in philosophy, medicine, and natural science. They were soothsayers and interpreters of dreams, and at their best, they tried to be good and holy men who sought for truth. It goes on to say this line just a few uh, sentences later in this chapter. William Barclay says, Some heavenly brilliance spoke to them at the entry of a king into the new world. They saw something in the natural world that told them something supernatural was about to happen. N.T. Wright explains it like this. The ancient world innocent of streetlights, never forgot the night sky. Many people, particularly in the countries of the east of Palestine, had developed a unique study of the stars and the planets as a fine art, giving each one very particular meanings. They believed, after all, that the whole world was a piece. It was connected, that everything was connected to the other. And everything was interconnected. And when something important was happening on the earth, you could expect, they believe, to see it reflected in the heavens. When God, when the supernatural was up to something, these people knew that God also expressed himself in the natural world, that, that you would see the hand of God reflected in the natural world as well. And so this is where we pick up in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. I invite you to follow with me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. But not only King Herod, notice that next line, and all of Jerusalem with him. 
God's people were disturbed. When he had called together all the people, chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Now, what prophet are they referring to here? They're, they're referring to Micah. And Micah has this, this passage in, in Micah 5, 2, in which he is a, also a predictor of the, the Messiah to come. It's a messianic prediction in which he says this next line that they are going to read. And so here we see Jerusalem, God's people, their leaders, their, their teachers, their chief priests, they knew this messianic prediction. They knew what was to happen. And they become a bit indifferent to what is actually happening. But you, and this is them quoting Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the, to the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned in a dream not to come back to Herod, they returned by another route. They returned back to their country by another route. You probably noticed that besides the Magi, there's another main character in this scene. In fact, this main character in the narrative is this kind of supervillain Herod. In the world of supervillains, you have, you know, Darth Vader, and then you have Herod. These kind of supervillains that are just out there. No one likes a supervillain that is also super disturbed, anxious, and severely insecure. But that is the kind of supervillain that Herod, Herod, Herod is. Herod is half Jewish. But he's also half Edomite blood and with a long lineage there. He made himself really useful to overcompensate for his, what they would have called half-breedness. So he grew up with this insecurity, and so he knew he had to see who the biggest dog was in the playground, and he had to play to them. And he saw that Rome was the biggest dog in the playground, and he said, I need to be on their good side so that I can be somebody, because my lineage alone will not make me anyone. So Palestine goes to war, and then there's also civil wars. And in this time, Herod makes himself very useful to Rome. And they said, wow, you guys, uh, have you noticed what this half-Jew is doing for us? Well, let's, let's reward him for that. I mean, he's turning on his own people and helping us, right? So they make him governor at first. And he does so good at that, and he's so ruthless at this, that it's not long to all of a sudden they move him up and they appoint him as king. This is where he holds his power the longest, and it's where he earns the name Herod the Great. 
Some say Herod was not only a great mean guy, but he was also a great gentle guy. They say that, in fact, when he rose to power, that nobody before him had ever kept peace or brought order to disorder quite like he did. He was also a great builder, from rebuilding war-torn cities to building the new temple. He once melted some of his own gold plates to help buy food and resources during a time of famine. At this time, they were going through famines about every 15 years. And he melted some of his own gold to buy resources and starch to be able to feed those who were suffering. But as we see in this text, Herod was not only sometimes a good guy, he was also a supervillain. He was also greatly suspicious. And this was his major flaw. It wasn't his only flaw, but he would also murder anyone that stood in his way or made him suspicious. This is where he gets the name Herod the Great. In fact, the Roman emperor, Augustus, says this about his own king. It was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. It's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He said this because Herod married his wife, Maryam. His mother uh, came along. His, uh, her mother, I'm sorry, came along. And then they had three sons. Herod grew suspicious of them one day and murdered them all. Matthew portrays this old king as cunning, as cruel, and as alarmed by the coming of a new king, a baby. He's got major issues. He's in infuriated, and he's insecure about this baby who is in seemingly weak form. And Matthew has already begun to draw the contrast before us of the empire of the world and the empire of the kingdom in which is to come. I love how the New Interpreter's Bible commentary contrasts the two, and I invite you just to listen as I read. Herod had magnificence. Christ was a helpless babe. Herod had power and used it to cruel ends, but Christ had compassion and a different power. Herod was craft, but Christ guileless. Herod had all of Jerusalem with him, and Jesus arrived seemingly on befriended. This contrast that is already taking place in Matthew about the empire of this world and the way in which the kingdom is breaking through in this world. Already here at the birth of Jesus, we also see that God, the God's ways versus the ways of the sword have great contrast. In fact, the New Interpreter's Bible commentary goes on to ask this question. How does goodness survive when badness has both conspiracy and the sword? Here Herod is out. He's manipulative. He's conspiracy. He will murder anyone that is in his way, including all the newborn babies. And while we don't find that in extra biblical resources, if he's willing to murder murder his own family because he's suspicious, it is definitely in his nature to kill every baby to stop Jesus from being king. How does goodness survive when goodness, when, sorry, when badness has both conspiracy and the sword? It's a great question of what is happening in this story. But what we see with Herod in all of Jerusalem that Matthew says is with him is this. When the Gentiles or the outsiders, those who were not God's people, come to worship those in control of Jerusalem, the city of God become troubled. When the Messiah shows up, outsiders come to worship him, 
and the insiders are bothered by that. The people that were waiting for God to break his silence and speak to them are suddenly bothered that God has showed up. As a side tangent, the same reality is true of us many times. We want to see neighbors and outsiders come to worship, but those in control, us, the people who worship God, also get troubled when they come and they are so different than us. We are bothered by the way they dress or the way they talk or the things they say or the places they hang out. We want them here, but we're also seemingly troubled by them. Like Herod, we might be sometimes a bit supervillainish, insecure, suspicious, and at times even murderous, I would suggest. Herod is out to undermine that which works against him. Do we ever do that as a church? That which makes us uncomfortable, are we willing to love it or attack it? And I leave that as a rhetorical question. There are several things that we can take away from this short passage. There are many layers to it. I had a chance to read no less than 16 commentaries this week on this passage, and we could spend the next hour and a half about all of the interesting things of which these 12 verses bring to the table. But this morning we are going to look at what we can see from the journey of the Magi. If you have your bulletin with you, I encourage you to open it. You'll find a place where there's some notes. You can follow along. As I said, some of us are tired, some of us are hungry, and some of us are kind of just in our own world because last night was so much fun. And so you probably won't get everything this morning, and I encourage you to look at the notes later this week. The first thing we can take away this morning is this. By looking at those who God gathered into the nativity story, it's obvious to see that the story of God was to include everyone. Jesus received several visitors after his birth. It was really this hodgepodge mixture. It was a mixture of social rejects, people of prominence, and those who walked closely with God. However, it's never the religious, the zealous, or the teachers of the law. In fact, teachers of the law are still seemingly in darkness, talking to themselves, kind of following themselves and leading their sheep in the dark and in the blind. In fact, without any real awareness of what God is up to in the world, it seems those who see it are those on the outside. Jesus was visited by opposites, shepherds, easily overlooked people, and magi, people of prominence. Shortly thereafter, Jesus' uh, path crosses a man who was devout to God, and he kind of just lived by himself and was devout to the Holy Spirit, and his name was Simeon. And so he crosses paths with him because the Holy Spirit had walked closely with him and made him aware of what Jesus was doing. And at that time, he also encounters Anna, a widow who is easily overlooked by society, and spends her days sitting in the temple praying. She keeps herself Busy by walking with God. These are the only people that are aware of what God is up to. By looking at those who God gathered into the nativity story, it's obvious to see that the story of God was to include everyone. Gentile, an outsider, an insider, who walked closely with God. It's interesting to notice in this story and the other stories of those who visited Jesus That in the beginning scenes of his story, it was a very unique collective. 
those that were able to see what God was doing were actually from the outside familiar spheres of influence, the neighborhood, and popular religious systems. The shepherds lived in the fields outside the city. The magi lived to the east and lived in the temple. None of these people are from Jesus' and his parents' sphere of influence. They are not from his lineage, uh, spheres of influence. They are not from the neighborhood, and they are definitely not from the popular or religious systems and communities around them. In this passage we read, it says that all of Jerusalem was with Herod. They missed everything their prophets said. They missed the purpose of every promise and hope they held in their hearts. It took people removed from this context to point out to them that God was up to something big. These people that did see what God was doing well, they saw what he was doing because of their dedicated pursuit of him, actively looking for signs, and living with worshipful expectation and anticipation. When we read the passage, did you notice that the magi, these wise men, had come, people of prominence, only with one purpose to them. They wanted to worship. Luke tells us Simeon, who walked with the Holy Spirit, as I said, and Anna, who prays day and night. The shepherds are invited by angels in their innocence, and here, seeking after the truth in the world, have been looking for truth to worship. These magi were actively seeking the truth, so much more than God's own people. They worshiped better than God's people. In this story, the journey of the magi is an awesome example of how to pursue after God's heart in the world. These are people that just get up and go after it. They don't care. They're not even from the same belief structure. They are not even from the same culture, but they want to know the truth, and they go after it. In this passage, there's actually three reactions to Jesus as Messiah in which we notice. They are the same reactions that may be present in our neighborhood about Jesus, and they also might be the same reactions to who Jesus is that we may have represented here this morning. Herod reacted to Jesus as Messiah with hostility. Mm, that guy makes me uncomfortable. He challenges who I am. I don't like him. Priests and scribes reacted with indifference. Well, we, we know what the good books say. We know what the prophets say. But... I don't really care that you're out searching for this guy. Well, it doesn't really affect me. But the Magi reacted with adoring worship. I want to look at the journey of the Magi and how we can follow it up and live our lives to know God's heart. But first, I want us to also check our reactions in this passage to the gospel, to outsider, to God's heart, to Jesus as Messiah against these three reactions. Are any of them hitting you? When the outsiders come, do you grow with hostility? Are you indifferent? But what do we do with all this? What does it mean to live and to follow the, the Magi's journey? If it's so great an example of how to press into God's heart, what happens there? Well, there's actually eight things that we see them do, and this is our final point. First, they were actively looking for signs in the world. They wanted to know truth at all costs, and they know 
in their belief system that everything was interconnected. And so God, if he's doing something, it'll show in the natural world. They were looking for signs in the world. Are you actively pursuing signs of God's hand at work in the world? They automatically saw God as the source of the signs. The things that you see, do you see them as God? They also pursued to know more. In fact, they didn't say, oh, you know what, I saw this star, and I know that means there's going to be a king born over there. Maybe we should ask their libraries to send us some scrolls so we can study it more. No. At all costs, they pack themselves up and pursue it, taking months to get there. They, they even asked questions to realign. They stop in, They've lost sight of the star for minutes, and they say, Hey, Herod, uh, we heard there's going to be a king born here. Did they ask the right guy? No, but that's part of the journey is asking questions to learn to realign ourselves. The next thing we see is after they asked the questions to realign themselves, the star appeared again the minute they left Herod. Did you notice that? In the uncertainty, they waited again for the signs to reappear. They didn't fret. They tried to realign their journey. It didn't work. They waited for the sign to appear again. And from the beginning, they approached with a heart of worship. The seventh thing we see them doing is this. They brought God their best stuff. They didn't just show up and say, so you're going to be king someday. They presented him with the best of their promises. And then it says they went back after worshiping Mary And they took that scene that they sat and gathered with her and the baby Jesus in the house, and they took it back to their country, to their neighborhoods, to their spheres of influence. They carried it out on mission. The journey is always blocked by both nature's barriers and the Herod systems of the world. But it leads to life for all of those who venture. What are you letting block on your, bened- on, your, on your journey to follow like the Magi? You have eight steps of their journey. And which one for you seems the weakest? Which one do you excel at? And which one is it in which you see yourself struggling the most with? It's because of their eight-step plan that they were able to press in to see the heart of God and to carry that message with them. I encourage you to reflect on that this week. And I just want to read this screen one last time because I love this way this commentary comes up here. Uh, And also the worship team can join us back up here. The journey is always blocked by both nature's barriers and the Herod systems of the world. But it leads to life for all those who venture. We might also say the journey is shown in nature and history and also in the supernatural, and it's bigger and can combat even the biggest Herod systems with all their sword and conspiracy. And those who are willing to push through that and follow the journey of the Magi will find life.